You know, sometimes one word makes all the difference in the world. In the previous hymnal, there's a Thanksgiving hymn called uh, Come You Thankful People, Come, favorite. And one of those verses says that the angels will gather in all the fruitless ears and store them in God's garner or His barn. And people looked at that and said, wait a minute. God doesn't gather fruitless ears. And so they talked to somebody about that. Oops, that's a mistake. That should have been the angel gathers his fruitful ears. Well, what do we do about that? Well, the publishing house knew what congregations had ordered how many copies of the first edition, and so they sent them a number of sheets that had the word fruitful, 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 fruitful printed on them, and you cut them out and pasted them over the word fruitless, so it said the right thing. But that's not the most famous example of how one word can change things. That honor, if you will, falls to the 1631 uh, edition of the King James Version printed in England. At that, in that place, a word not was omitted from the text of the Sixth Commandment so that it read, Thou shalt commit adultery. A lot of people probably bought that version. <laughs> see, Pastor? See what it says? Today, we see one little word in, at the end of, of Jeremiah's Lamentations uh, to consider. And speaking of God, Jeremiah says he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to the children of men. And that should have prompted us to stop and think, wait a minute, Jeremiah. What do you mean God doesn't willingly do this? Didn't he willingly punish the Israelites uh, by destroying Jerusalem when he called them to repent and they didn't? Where did the misery come from, if not you, when all the people perished in the flood? If the misery didn't come from you when the people of Israel spent those 40 years in the wilderness wandering around, uh, and were bitten by snakes, some of them, and some were swallowed up by the ground, and they felt hunger and they felt thirst. If that didn't come from you willingly, where did it come from? And what about the curses your prophets spoke to those disobedient nations that caused them to be little more than a footnote in the annals of history? And today, what about the misery that's brought about by famine, by war, by pestilence, and pandemics? If God doesn't willingly afflict people with these things, where do they come from? Do they happen by accident? Do they escape his providential notice while he's busy doing something else in the universe? Is God like the, like the, the parent who carelessly leaves a, a tool lying about and the child gets a hold of it and hurts itself and the parent says, I didn't mean for that to happen. I didn't intentionally do that. It was an accident. Are we to believe that all these things are just accidents and have no fingerprint of God in them? What's going on? But in fact, Jeremiah seems to contradict himself in these two verses. In the same stanza, the prophet concedes, though he brings grief, admitting that God does bring grief, and then turns around and says, God willingly doesn't bring grief. How do we work this out? Is there somebody up in heaven twisting God's arm, saying, God says, I really don't want to do it. Oh, oh, 
all right, all right, uncle, I'll do it, I'll do it, but I'm not doing it willingly. No, the answer comes in this form. The key lies in that one word, willingly. Theologians talk about God's will in two ways. They speak about it and of God's active will by which he runs the universe and controls everything. And then there is God's consequent will. What do we mean about that? God's will can be opposed. It often is. You and I do it every day. If we were created in His image, that means we too have wills. And we can do things that we want to do. As the very first story of Genesis tells us, we can oppose God's will. He told our parents, don't eat from that tree. And Eve said, you know, something's up here. I think there's more to it than just that. I think God's holding something back from us. Let's go ahead and do it. And they did. And ever since then, they and we have experienced the consequent will of God. We're not brainless robots. The Ten Commandments set out God's perfect will for us so that we know how we should act towards Him and toward one another. But as I said, every day you and I know that we do not follow that will in all of its ways. So, what happens? When we oppose God's will, there are consequences that we must face. And those things, the result of that, wind up in a group of behaviors that befall us that are called the results of God's consequent will. When I was in sixth or seventh grade, I played in the summertime with this rocket that I could fill with water and then fill with a baking soda-like substance and then put the bottom on it and set it on the ground, walk away from it to the string, along the string line, wait a couple minutes, pull the string, up in there it would go as a release of that pressure. Well, one lazy summer afternoon, my friend and I decided that wasn't enough excitement. I proposed, let's take some of that stuff and put it in a little glass bottle, a little glass aspirin bottle that I emptied the aspirin out of, screw the lid on, we'll throw it out in the yard and stand behind the garage door with its window, that was our blockhouse, uh, and, and wait until the thing explodes and watch that. That's going to be cool. So we did it, threw it in the yard, and we even did a countdown because we were affected by the atomic age and rockets and everything like that and blockhouses. So 10, 9, 8, all the way to zero. Nothing happened. Reset the clock. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, all the way to zero. Still nothing happened. Third time's a charm. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, all the way to zero. Still nothing happened. I said, all right, that's it. I'm going to go outside, pick it up, unscrew it, put more of this stuff in, screw it back up, and we'll try another time. <clears throat> As I bent down to pick up the bottle, the zero hour came. And two pieces of glass sliced through my arm, and in one place I bled like the proverbial stuck pig. Luckily, having been in Boy Scouts, I knew how to stop it with a pressure point until Mom got home to take me to the doctor. Now, would it have been right for me to complain, why did you let this happen to me, God? 
Was it God's will to make me suffer that? Did he say, ah, this Cripe kid's had it too easy for this summer. I'm going to make sure that he really feels some suffering. Oh, I did. That arm throbbed for several days afterwards where the stitches were. No, he didn't. No more than we could say that God willingly brings us to death through any accident or recklessness on our part. There is that consequent will of God. And that means He does allow us to face the consequences when we go against His will, painful as those may be. And when those things happen, we dare not shake our fist at God and say, where were you when this happened to me? Now granted, there are some times when we overreach and overthink this, such as if my mother on the way home to pick me up had thought, this is all my fault, I should have never let him buy that rocket. No, that was my fault, that was my doing. She had no reason to feel guilt or feel that she was expressing God's consequent will. She was expressing the outflow of my sin that caused her to feel that pain. But what do we do when that does happen to us? Rather than shake our fist at God and complain, Jeremiah advises us, let him sit alone in silence. Let him bury his face in the dust. The Lord has laid it upon him. In other words, stop complaining about how unfair God is when you're the one who did it to yourself. We all have stories to tell about kids whose parents hover over them and make sure that nothing bad happens to them and and make sure nothing evil occurs to them. And they're called helicopter parents these days because they hover over their parents and don't, don't want to let them experience anything bad. But you know, if you do that every day, the child develops a very skewed sense of what the universe and what the world is like and how it operates. And they come away thinking, they're invincible. Nothing bad's ever going to happen to them. Somebody's always going to step in. Somebody's always going to stop them from experiencing the bad things that other people experience. Well, the scripture says that God does not will the death of any sinner. And yet we know that sinners do die. Jeremiah says the Lord is good to those whose hope is in him. And one of the measures of God's goodness is that he lets us face the consequences of what we do when it opposes his will. He does it in the hopes that once we experience that pain and suffering, we will turn back to him, repent, and ask for his forgiveness. And that forgiveness is possible because God did one time willingly allow someone to face grief, pain, and suffering. And when that person prayed, Father, if it is possible to take this cup from me, do so, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Isaiah had prophesied, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus endured the just punishment we deserve when we exercise our wills against God. Not the consequent will, but when we willingly oppose Him. He experienced it because we think that in the grand scheme of things we know better than God. That He's somehow shortchanging us. 
In Christ Jesus, God's compassions never fail. We are not cast off by the Lord forever when we face His consequent will. There is always redemption, forgiveness, and grace. Great, uh, Jeremiah says, great is His compassion. Great is His faithfulness. And in Christ Jesus, we see that even applies when we go against His will. Amen.